So you're doing so, please take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 11, our text for this Pentecost Sunday, Genesis chapter 11. And as you are turning to Genesis 11, have to give thanks to God for two things in particular. We want the church to rejoice in uh, the faithfulness of the Lord. The first is this, that uh, as of today, the first Sunday in June marks 80 years since Christ Community Church was planted as a church. So we give thanks to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for preserving us uh, faithfully through all these 80 years. And the second is that 24 years ago this month, uh, we moved into this building uh, that we've enjoyed uh, for uh, uh, the glory. We pray for the glory of God and for the good of his people. So thank you, Lord, for that. Well, and I already gave the shout out at the beginning about Pete and Anna. Also shout out to Seth Ray, Tara, who had a successful party yesterday. And uh, Seth is graduated from high school, so shout out to the Rays as well. All right, um, Genesis chapter 11, our text for this morning. We will read verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read the text, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and afterward I will say this is the word of the Lord. If you agree, please say thanks be to God. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. We believe that your word is the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to preface this story by saying that I got Sophia's permission to tell the story. Okay? That's my caveat at the beginning here. So last year, there was a movie that came out called Shang-Chi. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It was a Marvel movie. I believe it's the 25th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
So they've made a couple movies. One of them is Shang-Chi. Anyway, so I watched it with the kids. Bethany may have been out of town. I can't remember. But I know for sure that I watched it with the kids. And um, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, it's a, it's a Marvel movie. It's a superhero movie. And most of the characters in Shang-Chi are Chinese. And so the first 10 minutes, like the first 7 to 10 minutes of the movie are all in Mandarin Chinese. And there are English uh, subtitles. So I, I turn the movie on, and we're watching it, and I'm not thinking about it, right? I'm just watching the movie and reading the subtitles, and about five minutes into the movie, Soph says, Dad, I don't know what they're saying. She said, because I can't read, and I don't know Spanish. <laughs> Those are all fair points. <laughs> they're... Um, there is no doubt a beauty to the diversity of <clears throat> languages that exist in the world, okay? There's a beauty to it. But at the same time, the truth is that the variety of languages spoken by all of the peoples of the world has its origin in God's judgment of humanity, so we see here in the Babel account. Our text for this Pentecost Sunday 2022 is the account from the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And so before we jump into that, we do also want to remind ourselves that Pentecost is an important day on the church calendar. In fact, though it is the most neglected of these three, Pentecost is just as important as Christmas or Easter. In fact, when you think about the, the church calendar, the way the year is structured liturgically, it's structured around the Trinity. It's structured in a Trinitarian way around these three high holy days, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. The, the liturgical calendar begins every year with the season of Advent and Christmas, where we remember and celebrate that the Father sent the Son. Okay, so we begin the Christian year with the Father, the Father sending the Son. Then we move to Holy Week and Easter, Good Friday and Easter, and this is the time of the year where we remember and celebrate the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The third segment of the year, so you have Christmas time, the Father sends the Son, you have Easter time, the Son dies and resurrects. The third segment of the liturgical calendar is what people often call ordinary time, and it's inaugurated by this trilogy of uh, holy days that we find ourselves in the middle of today. So last week, we celebrated Ascension. Next week, we will celebrate Trinity, and today, we celebrate Pentecost. This is the time of the year that we remember and celebrate that the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the church. In our call to worship, we read about the coming of the Holy Spirit in, uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You might be wondering, now as we're beginning this sermon, what in the world does Babel have to do with Pentecost? What does Genesis have to do with Acts? That's a question we're going to explore this morning. And as we consider this passage on the Tower of Babel, on this Pentecost, what we're going to see is that the gospel redeems what is ruined by sin. 
This is a consistent theme in God's words, beginning with Genesis 3 all the way through the new creation. But it is clear also in Genesis chapter 11 that the gospel redeems what is ruined by sin. So before we actually look at the text of Genesis chapter 11 in the Babel passage, let's remind ourselves of the setting of Genesis 11. So Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, is what theologians often refer to as prehistory. Now, we don't want to be confused. That doesn't mean these things happened before history happened. But what it does mean is that no one knows for sure the exact dating of the events of Genesis 1 through 11. Some theologians guess based on genealogies and other things, but really no one knows for sure. Because this section of Scripture tells us about the story of the world before Israel. We do know for sure the exact dating of the life of Abraham. And the life of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12. This is another turn in redemptive history where Yahweh calls Abram, who becomes Abraham, out of his idolatry, and he promises to make him a nation that will bless the world, which inaugurates the story of Israel. And so everything before Genesis 12, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, all these things, uh, we don't know exactly when they happened, how long, people guess, but it's, it's the point in redemptive history that is pre-Israel, pre-Abraham. So if we look now at Genesis chapter 11, we see that the text says uh, in verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. The Hebrew literally reads, and all of the earth had one lip and one words. At this point in history, in the history of the world, everyone on the earth spoke the same language. But this text, so it's, that's the first thing it's saying, but it's also emphasizing the unity of humanity in their rebellion against God. They are one people. They all speak the same language, and they're one in their rebellion. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we have seen that sin um, perpetually permeates the planet. Sin spreads. Sin escalates. Adam and Eve rejected God as their sole authority by taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And within one generation, one of their sons murdered their other son. Sin perpetuates, it permeates, it grows, it snowballs. Verse 2 says that the people migrated from the east. In noting that the people went east, Moses, who, who wrote the book of Genesis, Moses, is calling our minds back to Adam's fall in Genesis 3. When you read that, when you see they're going east, he wants you to think about Adam in Genesis 3. Because after Adam sinned, at the end of Genesis 3, we read this, Genesis 3, 23 through 24. Then Yahweh God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, he drove the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
1952, John Steinbeck published his magnum opus entitled East of Eden. The novel explores themes of human depravity and guilt, among other themes. The title, East of Eden, and many of the themes of the novel are drawn from the book of Genesis, especially from Genesis 4. Because not only was Adam sent east after he sinned, but after Cain killed Abel, Genesis 4 says this, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In the book of Genesis, if you were to read through the book of Genesis on your own, you would see that going east is a literary device that is signaling rebellion against God, okay? Adam did it, Cain did it, and now the people in the Babel narrative are migrating from the east. We're also clued in here that something bad is about to happen because not only are the people migrating from the east, but they also settle in the land of Shinar. After the flood, Yahweh commanded Noah and his family to populate the earth. He recapitulated the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you're going to have to have some babies, right? And you're going to have to like spread out and live in some different places so that the earth is covered. These people were supposed to spread all over the earth, but in their rebellion, they are settling together in one place. They migrated from the east, verse 2. They found a plain in the land, and they settled there together in the land of Shinar. This, this land that they're settling in, this, in case you're wondering where did the Tower of, Tower of Babel happen, this would later become the Babylonian Empire and is now uh, modern-day Iraq. The text also tells us in verse 3 how hard the people work to build this city. They, they make bricks and they burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 3 is certainly describing to us an historical account. This is historically what happened. But we must also remember that nothing in Scripture is mere history. Okay, this is a hermeneutical principle that some people get confused about. So they'll, they'll read things in the Old Testament, you know, Genesis 1 through 11, or, or about the history of Israel, and they will assume uh, maybe in part that the Old Testament is not for Christians, that it's just for Israel. And so as far as we're concerned, these Old Testament things are mere history. They're just accounts of things that happened. That's incorrect. Nothing in the Bible is mere history. Okay? It is history, but it's never mere history. Everything written in the Bible has theological intention. It's teaching something. So this text that is emphasizing the work ethic of the people, it is doing that. But the problem is not just that the people are working diligently. The people are working diligently against God. Hard work is a virtue. 
but hard work is not virtuous in and of itself. Let's let that sink in for a minute. Hard work is a virtue, but hard work is not virtuous in and of itself. What do I mean by that? If we are working hard to earn our own righteousness, that is not virtuous. That is sin. Or if we are working hard, but in doing so we are neglecting our marriages or our families or our church, or if we are working hard in sin, doing sinful things, you know, um, it doesn't matter how diligently um, a member of the mafia works, it's still organized crime, right? Even if he's a go-getter. It's not virtuous. Um, so it, it's, it's helpful for us to be reminded that we cannot earn our own righteousness. Man, if, if, you are, um, if you're unsure about that or you're not sure exactly what I mean by that, get Pastor Mike's notes from his Bible class this morning as we went through the book of Romans and talked about justification by faith alone. That was so good. If you don't, if you don't understand what I'm saying right now, Get, get his notes, read through them. It's super helpful. But we cannot earn our own righteous standing before the Lord. We must rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. So in terms of justification, in terms of being saved, hard work is not only not virtuous, hard work is damning. In terms of your salvation, you must not work, you must rest. That is the only way you can be saved. We must not work hard and in doing so neglect our homes or church. That would be sin. May we work hard for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. In Genesis 11, we see humanity sinfully working against the Lord. In fact, from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 11 at this point, we see the idolatry of humanity continuing to spread until it reaches this climax at the Tower of Babel. From the sin of Adam to Cain's murder of Abel, from uh, the state of the world before the flood to this pericope of the Tower of Babel, idolatry is perpetuating. This is what John Calvin says about the Babel pericope. He says, this is the perpetual infatuation of the world, to neglect heaven and to seek immortality on earth, where everything is fading and transient. That's good. I'm going to read it again. This is the perpetual infatuation of the world, to neglect heaven and to seek immortality on earth, where everything is fading and transient. And people are no different now than they were in this ancient culture of Genesis 11. This has been the problem since the garden, that people want complete self-reliance, that people want greatness, that people want to be God. So I already mentioned Pastor Mike's class this morning in the book of Romans. He began class using an illustration of the Led Zeppelin song. There he is. He heard me calling his name. The Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven. 
He talked about this woman who's trying to buy her way to heaven. It's funny. I, I, was, I was debating doing a similar thing with this in Tower of Babel, Tower to Heaven, right? I ended up going with Shang-Chi, so we had a little variety today at church. But, but that's what's happening at the Tower of Babel. They are trying to build a, this great tower that reaches the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves, so that they would be great. The people of Genesis 11 want to make a name for themselves so that they're not dispersed. Remember, in Genesis 9, Yahweh commands them to disperse, to be fruitful and multiply and cover the globe. Verse 2, they settle there. And then in verse 4, they say, let's build a tower lest we be dispersed. So they don't want to do what the Lord is telling them to do. They're building a tower so that they can disobey what God has commanded. T. Desmond Alexander, a theologian, notes that these people here in Genesis 11, they wanted two things. They wanted security, right? They didn't want to be dispersed, and they wanted praise. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be viewed as great. Karl Barth says that Genesis 11 is the ultimate display of self-righteousness. The people did not want God's name but they wanted their name. It's interesting. There's a Hebrew wordplay that's going on here that's hard to notice in English. I want to try and point it out to you just so you can see what Moses is doing there. Look in verse 2. The very last word of verse 2 is the word there. You see that? It says they settled there. Okay? Now look at verse 4. They say, let's come on, let's build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So in verse 2, he writes, they settled there. In verse 4, let's build a tower to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. In verse 2, the word there is the Hebrew word sham, okay? Hebrew word for there, they settled there, sham, settled sham. The word name in verse 4 is the Hebrew word shem, They sound kind of similar, don't they? Sham, Shem. In verse 4 also, the Hebrew word for the the word heavens is the word Shemayim. So you have there, Sham, name, Shem, heavens, Shemayim. All three words sound similar, right? And Moses is making a point that the people are seeking to build their identity in this place that they want their name to rival the heavens there. Verses 5 through 7, we see the Lord's um, reaction, how the Lord deals with this rebellion. First thing God does is God descends. Notice in verse 5 says that Yahweh came down to see the tower. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. This is not the first time in the book of Genesis where God has come to humanity. Uh, After Adam sinned in Genesis 3, he goes and hides. Yahweh goes to him. Before the flood, Yahweh surveys the earth in Genesis 6 to see that every intention of the thoughts of humanity's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. 
Now, Yahweh condescends to see this architecture of idolatry. There is some irony here, too, isn't there? Because the Lord has to come down to see the tower. The people are attempting to build a tower that reaches the heavens. But in God's sight, it's so puny that he has to come down to see it. Notice also that the people here are called the children of man. We're reminded of our weakness and our frailty. As the Narnians would say, we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We are from the dust, and to the dust we will return. Genesis 3.19. Oh, but not so with God. God is the omnipotent one. Humanity builds the greatest wonder they can fathom. Let us build a tower that reaches the heavens so that we make a name for ourselves, so that everyone in history always knows that we built this great tower. And God has to come down to see it. Guess they didn't reach the heavens. God descends and then God makes this declaration. He says, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is not describing what some have called the limitless possibility of man. That is not what God is saying. God is not saying, oh no, what do I do? Look at how powerful these people are. God is not sitting in heaven shaking in fear at the superiority of humanity. Scripture only ever reveals God as the sovereign Lord who exclusively rules over all creation. Now, what is God saying then? God is saying here, look what they're doing. There is no limit to the collective sinfulness of humanity. Nothing will be impossible in the sense that humans will rebel in any and every way possible. And so God deliberates among himself. In verse 7, we get to eavesdrop on an intra-Trinitarian conversation. Much like Genesis 1.26. Remember in Genesis 1.26 where God says, let us make man in our image. Well, who's saying that? Because there's only one God. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God in three persons. So they're talking to each other. In the same way here, in verse 7, the Lord says, come let us go down and there confuse their language. He uses the first person plural, let us go down. So even in the very beginning of the Bible, we can see the seeds of our understanding of who our God is. We believe in one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's judgment then comes in verses 8 through 9. He, he judges the people by dispersing them all over the earth and confusing them. He separated the people all over the face of the earth. If the people were not willing to multiply on the earth themselves, 
then God will sovereignly make them do it. They will fulfill the commission to Adam. They will fulfill the recapitulated commission to Noah, whether they want to or not. So much for free will. Note, or, or not only does the Lord disperse them, but he also confuses their languages. Again, this is where all of the different languages of the earth originates. Uh, this is why Sophia couldn't understand the beginning of Shang-Chi. And without subtitles, I couldn't either. Um, the name Babel from verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel. Uh, that's derived from the Hebrew word balal, which means confused. The place is literally called the confused place. Even today, when we hear languages that we don't understand, or if you try to learn a, another language and the difficulty of it, you know, in seminary, I had to uh, take Greek and Hebrew. It's not easy learning another language. Um, if you've tried, you know, some of you are really smart, you know, and you, you just pick that stuff up. But for most of us, it's not an easy thing. But these, these differences in languages remind us, at least in part, that sin and self-righteousness results in confusion. The sin and self-righteousness of the people of Babel resulted in the confusion of the people. All of the public and personal tragedies that we've witnessed in recent weeks, the shootings in Buffalo and Texas, the SBC sexual abuse report that was released, and even closer to home, the death of Renee Ross to cancer. These things are confusing to us. You know, people ask, how could this happen? Why does this happen? Apart from faith and understanding of sin and death, judgment, grace, and eternal life, it's just confusion. How can these things be? Well, the answer is sin. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to confusion. But thanks be to God that the story of redemption does not end in Genesis chapter 11. In God's justice, it certainly could have but in his grace it does not. For in Genesis 12, the story of redemption shifts focus from a global scope to a particular man and his descendants. Yahweh calls Abram out of the nations, who would become Abraham, and tells Abraham that through his family, God would bless all of the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 3. We see this promise begin to unfold from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob who is renamed Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. Those sons move to Egypt by the end of the book of Genesis. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, even as we've seen through the first four chapters, this family has become the size of a nation. And they are enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Yahweh is going to lead them out of slavery through Moses. And he's going to take them to Mount Sinai and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And it is there that they're going to become the nation of Israel. Later, one of Judah's descendants, his name is David. He becomes the greatest king in the history of Israel. And through the line of David, 
will come the incarnation of the Son of God. It is in the incarnation of Christ that the gospel comes first to Israel and then to the nations. Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God who took on humanity in his incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the one who lived without sin, earning our righteous standing before God. Jesus died on the cross, bearing God's wrath for our sin. He was buried, and on the third day, he resurrected from the dead. Now everyone, and I mean everyone, who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone will receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. This is true even today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be saved this morning. You can receive the forgiveness of sins. You can receive the hope of eternal life if you will acknowledge that God is holy, that you're a sinner, and if you will trust in Jesus alone, God will save you. There is no one ever who has called upon the name of the Lord who has been turned away. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At Babel, God judged the nations. But it is through Jesus alone that all the nations can be reconciled to God. Not just Israel, but all the nations. In Matthew 28, Christ gave his disciples the great commission wherein he commanded them to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. In Galatians 3, 28, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile, but all who are in Christ are the offspring of Abraham. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, Paul writes that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. In Revelation 20, John writes that ever since the resurrection and ascension of Christ, Satan has been bound. And what is, Satan, what is the nature of the binding of Satan? Revelation 23, 20, verse 3 says this, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations about the gospel. Jesus is the true anti-Babel. Humans cannot build a tower to reach God. You can't buy a stairway to heaven. But God comes down to us in his son, Christ Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The gospel of Jesus is the story of the reversal of Babel. And we see the flowers of Christ's kingdom begin to bloom at Pentecost. Last week, as we mentioned, we remembered and celebrated the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, we remember and celebrate the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and the great reversal of Babel happened. Did you catch that? At Babel, the people are separated and confused by different languages. At Pentecost, the people are filled with the same spirit and they all understand each other even though they're speaking different languages. At Babel, the people are dispersed. At Pentecost, 3,000 people come together and are saved. N.T. Wright said this, Now Luke is implying with the day of Pentecost that the curse of Babel is itself overturned. In other words, God is dramatically signaling that his promises to Abraham are being fulfilled and the whole human race is going to be addressed with the good news of what has happened in and through Jesus. This has been God's plan all along. This is not just a New Testament reality. This has always been the plan. Psalm 86 verse 9 says that all the nations shall come and worship before the Lord. Psalm 22, 27 says that all of the families of the nations shall worship before God. Revelation chapter 7 paints a picture of every tribe, nation, people, language, worshiping Christ. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. The eschatological nature of the kingdom of Christ is global. The nations that were separated at Babel will be gathered by the Spirit at the throne of King Jesus. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we can think about Babel and Pentecost and how it applies to Christ Community Church in 2022. I'm gonna give you five really quick ones, I swear, not long. Five, the first is evangelism. Evangelism, sharing the gospel. The reversal of Babel at Pentecost should motivate us to share the gospel with those who do not believe. How is it on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 people were saved? It was through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. No other means. So whether it is sharing the gospel with your children, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, we must take every opportunity that God gives us to share the good news of Jesus. And when we fail in moments that we ought to and we don't, we repent and we move forward. And then we take every opportunity that we can to share the gospel of Jesus. There is no other message that God has ordained to bring salvation to the nations. The Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells people exclusively through the gospel of Jesus. May we continue to develop a culture of evangelism here at Christ Community Church. Evangelism is the first one. Second one, humility. Babel and Pentecost should make us humble. We should be humbled by the judgment of Babel and by the grace of Pentecost because like, let's look around and be honest. Christ Community Church is primarily a Gentile church, right? I mean, we're, we're not primarily made up of Christian Jewish people. We are those who have been grafted in by the Holy Spirit. It is through God's grace that the good news of Israel's Messiah has come to us. And now, by faith, we are Abraham's offspring. Thank you, Lord, for the grace to those who were far off. So evangelism is the first one. Humility is the second one. The third one is the sin of racism. Now, 
we, we don't try to make hobby horses about anything here at Christ Community Church other than the gospel of Jesus. But when things come up in the text, we want to be faithful to address them. And among the other things that we see at Pentecost, Pentecost is certainly an apologetic against the sin of racism. Uh, the kingdom of Christ is not for a specific ethnic group or a specific social class or for any other demographic. The plan of God for salvation through Christ is for the nations. It's not just for Jewish people or people of any specific color or economic class or intelligence or gender or any other demographic you can think of. The Holy Spirit is changing people's hearts from every tribe, nation, and language. One theologian said, based on Revelation 7, we mentioned that earlier, that heaven will be a racist's worst nightmare. If you, listen, if, if you struggle with the sin of racism, repent. Repent. And look to your brown-skinned king who is saving the nations. That was number three. Number four, unity in the church. Pentecost should remind us of unity in the church. This is, first and foremost, a local reality, but it's also a universal reality. So let's take those one at a time. The local first, the local church, so Christ Community Church or any other faithful gospel church, is the new covenant manifestation of the kingdom of God. The local church is God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. We at Christ Community Church have all been regenerated by the same Holy Spirit. We gather every week around the same word. The unity of the Word and the Spirit should cultivate a family atmosphere here at Christ Community Church, one that is grounded in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We should have unity. Uh, but there's also a universal element to it. So the local church is the primary manifestation of the kingdom of God. But again, all faithful local churches uh, around the world for the last 2,000 years make up what we call the universal church. And regardless of the denomination or the flavor of any specific local church, we can and should learn from all Christian traditions that are faithful to the gospel. And you may have noticed we try to do this every week here at Christ Community Church through our liturgy. We utilize elements of the Baptist tradition, of the Presbyterian tradition, of the Anglican tradition, among others. And this is healthy, we think, because no one group of Christians has a corner on the truth. So if you are prone to reading or listening to one tradition, whether it's a segment of Southern Baptists or Reform Guys or John MacArthur or any other person or group that is like your thing that you're into, okay, if you're prone to kind of being stuck in one lane, and if you're also prone to viewing other people who don't embrace that favorite tradition of yours, if you view them as sinful, I would invite you to repent of your arrogance and self-righteousness. The Baptist tradition is not any more inherently righteous than the Presbyterian one or the Anglican one or vice versa. Just because John MacArthur said something or just because Matt Chandler or John Piper or Mark Dever or whoever you like to read or listen to, just because they said something doesn't 
necessarily mean it's right. And just because you hold a theological position on something doesn't mean that someone who disagrees with you is in sin. May we have a culture here at Christ Community Church that gratefully receives the contributions of all of the faithful saints, regardless of their tradition. That's the fourth one. The fifth one is the ordinary means of grace. We mentioned earlier that Pentecost inaugurates this annual liturgical season called ordinary time. It's kind of a weird thing to call something, right? This is the ordinary time. This is when everything's just like ordinary. We're, we're prone to have a negative connotation of that, but it's not, it's not negative at all. In fact, it's incredibly positive. This time begins at Pentecost. It brings us to Advent, this ordinary time where we start the calendar all over again. But ordinary time reminds us that God is pleased through his spirit to create, sustain, and grow his kingdom through the ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, prayer, singing, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship. These are the ordinary means through which the knowledge of the glory of Christ will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. And so we say proudly, may Christ Community Church always be an ordinary church. So the next time you're, you know, watching Shang-Chi or at the zoo and reading signs in English and uh, Spanish and Arabic or anywhere else where another language is being spoken or read or heard, you should be reminded of a couple things. Number one, you should be reminded of God's judgment against the prideful sin of Babel. But it should also remind you of the grace of Pentecost. As we begin this season of ordinary time here at Christ Community Church, may we be reminded that the glory of God is in the ordinary. The gospel redeems what is ruined by sin. The ordinary means of grace remind us weekly of the glory of the gospel. King Jesus is making his own name famous by his spirit through the ordinary work of preaching the word and administering the sacraments. And Philippians 2, 9 through 11, then tell us where this is going. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church at Babel, the people tried to make a name for themselves and they tried to reach heaven. But the gospel tells us that Jesus is the name that is above every name and that every knee under heaven will bow to his name only. Amen. Happy Pentecost. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for any here who aren't trusting in Jesus alone that your word would change their hearts. Father, that the Holy Spirit would take the gospel preached and would work regeneration in those who don't believe, that their eyes would be open to see the beauty of King Jesus, of who he is and what he did for them, that they would take that knowledge, that they would assent 
to its validity and that they would trust in Jesus alone. Father, we pray for your people as we prepare to come to the Holy Eucharist that you would sustain us this week through the word and through the holy meal. Father, that as we begin this season of ordinary time, that we would not be a people or a church that's caught up in every silly little craze of evangelicalism, that we would not be so concerned to be radical for Jesus, but that we would be content and faithful in being ordinary. Ordinary time reminds us that the ordinary means of grace reveal the glory of the gospel of King Jesus. So Father, we ask as we prepare to do this ordinary thing that we do every week to take the bread and to take the wine and to remember and to respond. Father, we ask that you would just give us a glimpse of how truly extraordinary that these ordinary things really are. We ask your blessing now on your people for your glory and for our good, we pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.